Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In a couple of months, we will gather here for worship on a Thursday evening, on an evening where we begin the great three days of celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on that Holy Thursday or Maundy Thursday, whatever your tradition, we will begin worship by inviting anyone who would like to, and most people generally do, to come forward and kneel around the altar. And there I will kneel with you, and I will trace the sign of the cross on your forehead with the same oil that we use to anoint the heads of those who are newly baptized. And I will look you in the eyes, and I will call you by name, and I will say, Carol, Jean, child of God, in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ, I forgive you all of your sins. It's one of the most powerful moments all year long, one of the most powerful rituals that we have, and, and one of the greatest privileges that I have as pastor to participate in that rite. And yet, as long as I've been doing that for some 10 years or so now, every year I just am waiting for somebody to say, wait a minute, pastor. Seriously? I mean, where do you get the chutzpah or moxie or whatever not safe for Sunday word you want to use for that, right? Where, where do you get off claiming the authority, the power to forgive sin? I mean, that's, that's huge, especially since most of you have not wronged me. Some of you have, but we'll deal with that at council, not, you know, on <laughs> Monday, Thursday, right? I mean, that, like, the person you should be reconciling with is perhaps your wife sitting next to you or your son who lives a thousand miles away. What business, what right do I have forgiving sin? It feels presumptuous, as powerful as it is. So Jesus looked up that day, literally looked up, And down from the ceiling there came this man lying on a mat whose four friends with their fierce faithfulness, their tenacity and audacity had torn open the roof so that their friend who could not walk could be lowered down to be at Jesus' feet in this house where literally there was no room for him. He was not welcome there. But they brought him to the very center of the house where Jesus was, to lay him at Jesus' feet and to, to pray that Jesus might do what they had heard he could do. And Jesus looks at this man and he sees the faithfulness of his friends and the first words out of Jesus' mouth are these, Son, your sins are forgiven. And immediately some of the grumpy people begin to grumble. Only in their hearts, right? They don't want Jesus to hear them. Except, of course, they don't realize that Jesus is apparently a Jedi or a, you know, Kryptonian or whatever angel can or alien can, you know, read your thoughts. But whatever, Jesus knows what they're saying, even though they're saying it quietly in their hearts. And what they're saying is this. What gives him the right? Who told Jesus, that he could forgive sin. That's God's business. Who does he think he is? 
Which is exactly the question. Who does he think he is? It's a powerful question. Who told him he could forgive sins? Of course, this whole, this whole encounter raises all sorts of interesting questions, right? I mean, let's be honest. Who brought sin into this in the first place, right? I mean, his friends brought him there because he couldn't walk. And the first words that Jesus speaks are not about standing up, taking your mat, and walking and going home, but instead, son, your sins are forgiven. Where did sin come into the question in the first place, right? It's almost as if showing up at the hospital one night, you go to the emergency room with a gaping gunshot wound to your chest, and the doctor's first words are, so let's talk about your cholesterol. I mean, that might also be an issue, but it's not exactly the presenting issue that brought me in tonight, right? So where does this question of the forgiveness of sins come in at all? When we're talking about a man who can't walk. And if you scratch much further into that, some really troubling stuff shows up. What... What connection is there between sin, which for us is a moral thing, right? It's about making good choices and not making bad ones. What connection does that have with sickness and death? I mean, am I the only one who's ever heard or perhaps said myself, especially when a child gets sick or a good man dies, what did he do to deserve this? What is the connection between who we are, what we do, how we behave, our rightness or wrongness, righteousness or sin, and the sickness and death that plagues so many of us? Lying behind that perfectly natural question is this weird assumption that that sickness and death are somehow tied up in some, some divine accounting scheme, some sort of system of fairness where God doles out sickness and health like Christmas presents at Christmas for the good girls and boys. It's hard not to have those questions arise in our hearts especially when something so blatantly unfair as the death of a child disrupts our whole understanding of how the universe works. Those are big questions, and they are important questions, and they are challenging questions. And I have come to believe that perhaps they're not always the right questions. Or maybe... In our obsession with fairness and and sickness and health, we sometimes get a little bit lost in the weeds and get a little off-center when we encounter these stories about what God is up to in Jesus Christ. Those questions are big and important, and we wrestled with some at the forum this morning, and we'll continue to do that for years to come. And perhaps the heart of the matter is somewhere else. And I want to go there. Now, before we do, a couple important caveats to sort of place this healing ministry in some context. The first caveat is that the physical healing of, you know, ailments, curing of diseases, was a pretty cool thing, right? I mean, it was a pretty awesome parlor trick that Jesus was apparently able to do. And it functioned in his ministry, to be sure. It at least provoked a lot of attention. However... 
Jesus wasn't the only one around back then who could miraculously heal. It wasn't super common, but there were others who, through the laying on of hands and other, other miraculous acts, were able to bring some form of healing to people. So when at, at the end of the story we all said, we've never seen anything like this before, it wasn't the physical healing that they were talking about. That's not what the issue was. The other caveat is that while there may have been some folks around like Jesus who were able to miraculously physically heal some people, the reality was beyond that, that was pretty much the extent of the healthcare system. Okay? There wasn't a great deal of medical science in any form or fashion that we would understand today. I mention that because it's important to remember that, that life expectancy back then was extremely low. Infant mortality was astronomical. It was a miracle among miracles that a child lasted to the age of 16. What I mean by that is simply to say that, of course, the sickness and death of a child would have been heartbreaking and disruptive to the lives and the world of the parents, and yet, at the same time, it also just would have been another Tuesday in Capernaum. Sickness and death were all around them all the time. None of them lived with the expectation that we have come to in our society. This expectation that borders on a guarantee that's really almost an entitlement that says as long as I've got good insurance and access to the best medical technology and personnel out there, I, I really am guaranteed and entitled to live until I'm 95, 100, or, or longer, which then, of course makes it unfair when I don't. That's just not the world that Jesus lived in. Sickness and death sucked, but they were a part of life. All that is to say that, that perhaps the physical healing of these stories, as powerful and important and meaningful as they might be, gets us a little distracted from what might really be going on. So what's really going on? It all goes back, really, to that first story that we encountered today. That first person Jesus encounters in Capernaum, the one who was possessed by an unclean spirit. His his whole self was under the, the power of an unclean spirit. And when Jesus shows up, immediately, before Jesus says anything... It is the unclean spirit, it is the demon, or whatever word we want to use for it, it is that person, that force, who is the first person in the entire Gospel of Mark, other than the divine voice that whispered sweet blessings in Jesus' ear at his baptism. This is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to correctly identify who Jesus is. The demon says, hey, There is a disturbance in the force. We know who you are. And we know why you're here. Jesus. Son of God. The Holy One of God. We know why you're here. And folks, it is good news when the Holy One of God shows up. Unless, of course, you're a demon. Then it's really bad news. They are not pleased by this development. And what ensues is a conversation, not about physical healing and wholeness, but, but rather about who does this guy belong to? Who gets to claim 
power and authority over his life. Essentially, what the, what the demon is saying is, this one belongs to us, right? We have claimed him. He's ours. You go somewhere else and do what you want. But this one, he belongs to us. And of course, what that means is not only that the demon has power in his life, but has power over that whole community because it takes a village to let demons own and occupy any among us. This is a a family illness that allows someone to be under the influence of something so foreign to life. And Jesus says, sorry. I know you think he belongs to you, but he doesn't. This one is mine. This one belongs to me. You go. You go. And with that, this ministry, this kingdom work begins. In which God has entered into the world that God made to reclaim territory. To reclaim the the rightful ownership and authority over your life, over our lives, over the life of the world. For this is the world that God crafted from the clay, from the dust. It belongs to God and to God alone. And so when the four men bring their friend to Jesus' feet, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what is the announcement of the forgiveness of sins, if not a bold and unadulterated claim that nothing that this man has or has not done or that has been done or not done to him, nothing gets to claim the authority over his life. No one gets to tell him who he is except for me. He belongs to me. This one who just a few minutes ago, there wasn't room for him at the end. There wasn't room for him in this room. But by God, his faithful friends made sure that he came to me because he is mine and mine alone. What is the forgiveness of sins but but the bold claim that says that your promised future is absolutely not dependent in any way upon your broken past? Or the brokenness of the world in which you live? What is the the forgiveness of sins but the bold claim that you are indeed free to be and belong to God and to God alone? That you may have a demon. You may have an addiction. You may have an illness. You may have a disease. But it does not get to define who you are. And never gets to have the final say. For in the waters of baptism, God claimed you as God's own. You don't belong to cancer. You don't belong to alcohol. You don't belong to grief. You belong to God. And to God alone. And that promise inscribed on your forehead in the waters of life, that promise tells you who you are And to whom you belong forever. 
And that word alone gets to have the final say on who you are and where you're going. And where you're going is home. And so, friends, on this day, rejoice as we claim the bold, presumptuous chutzpah to say, you are forgiven and free. So stand up, take your mat, walk, and go home. And give thanks and glory to God alone. Amen.